Hello and welcome to COM42Cast, your podcast from the neighboring uh, galaxy. My name is Miko Pawlikowski and I'll be your guide today. And today I have two amazing guests. Nicole van der Hooven, developer advocate and K6.io. Hello, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having us. And Simon Aronson, developer relationship uh, lead at K6.io also. Very nice having Hi. you today, Simon. Awesome being Thank here. You. Thank you so much for finding the time. It's uh, I, I really like the episodes when we have two people who actually know each other. <laughs> that always helps with the, the dynamic. So we have got so much stuff to cover on my list, and I'm really excited for all the performance testing uh, that you're going to tell me about today. But before we start with that, like the first thing that I actually noticed uh, when I was kind of looking at your online trace, you know, nothing is hidden <laughs> anymore, is that, Nicole, uh -oh. you speak like five languages and learning two more. And by languages, I mean actual human languages. How come? That's really awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I love to travel and I really like talking to people. And I think that it's different when you talk to someone in their language. It's always it always makes for a, a more genuine connection. It shows that you're willing to go the extra mile to meet them where they are. That's definitely the case. And you seem to have gone an extra mile and then some with Esperanto. You're officially the only person <laughs> I know that actually speaks that language. Oh, I nearly wore my Esperanto shirt today too. <laughs> wow. Yes, I do. And you'll be surprised that I've actually used Esperanto quite a bit during traveling, well, during my travels. Um, it's been more useful than, let's say, Dutch, which is way bigger than Esperanto. But I've spoken Esperanto in, in other countries, and I haven't really done that with Dutch. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, that does surprise me a little bit. I personally have never heard anyone speak. Can you say something in Esperanto? Yes, mi pobre paroli io mette en Esperanto. What do you want me to say? <laughs> say <laughs> performance <laughs> testing is amazing. I would probably say something like performa y testoy uh, estas tre tre bona. <laughs> Okay, so it kind of sounds vaguely Spanish to me for a complete like on that, but <laughs> it's really awesome. Okay, well, yeah. so, um, and then obviously you're probably going to be, uh, so do, did you, when you spoke Esperanto, was it to other people who specifically learned that language to, to kind of talk to strangers? Or was it because it's kind of similar to other languages and people could guess uh, what you meant? <laughs> I originally learned it because I read this study that said that um, there were two groups of students and one learned one group learned Esperanto for two months and then French for four. And then the other group learned French for six months. And the yep. first group scored better in almost every aspect of, of French, not Esperanto. I wanted to learn French. <laughs> and, you know, several years later, I speak Esperanto and only a little <laughs> French. So I kind of got waylaid on that. <laughs> that's fair enough. Okay, that's, that's a really awesome story. But 
uh, for all the other kind of posts on your LinkedIn, you know, timeline, it seems to do much uh, with uh, performance testing. And um, I saw that you're actually giving uh, a webinar later this week, Intro to Load Testing with Grafana and K6. And I really want to go into what Grafana Labs are doing because a lot of that is very awesome and K6. But before we get into that, so you seem to be a little bit obsessed with the performance testing. Is that <laughs> an accurate way of saying that? Or is it a bit of an exaggeration? No, that, that's probably accurate. Uh, I do I do really love performance testing. I, I think it's part of my personality to always want to optimize and be more efficient, not just with the software that I use or or the software companies that I work for, but just in general, I'm a bit of a min-maxer. <laughs> That's fair enough. And yeah, I'm saying all of that, but you, Simon, you have seem to have a similar trail, really. I saw a little bit of SRE into that, and I saw that you previously had your own freelance shop. And then you moved on to K6. Is that uh, is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. And yeah, and also there's this common theme of the open source. That's also something I want to touch upon a bit later. But before we do that, so what's performance test really? What's what, what, why is it something that people should be doing? Who should be doing it? And how do you actually define that? <laughs> okay, so performance testing really is, or performance engineering, I would say really is taking the the art of or the art taking the practice of uh, assessing your system and what kind of throughput or what kind of performance you can expect to get from it and uh, making that into something a little bit more along the lines of what we do in engineering in general i would say so you try to systemize it and define practices and how to make it you know fit into the everyday developer workflow or the tester workflow so how we do it is usually by doing load testing. You can do it in many different ways. You can do profiling or uh, or other types of testing as well, but mm-hmm. we, we usually do it as load testing. And for those who are not familiar with that, it, it usually means that we uh, create a set of virtual users, so to speak, that will try to access some kind of application resource in a, a very fast pace or in a defined pace. So you would say, mm-hmm. for instance, that, okay, you have this cool Conf42 page that you want to sell tickets to your conference from, and you want to make sure that whenever you uh, release a smashing SRE conference, for instance, you are able to withstand the pressure that all of the ruckus all over Hacker News will create uh, as soon as you release the news, right? So if you expect, for instance, that you will sell 10,000 tickets the first hour, then, then you want to test for that for that uh, particular uh, circumstance. So then you'll use performance testing or load testing to be more specific to simulate all those 10,000 users navigating through your web page, clicking the add to shopping cart button, uh, checking out everything, and make sure that your system is able to withstand that kind of pressure. Definitely. And... Um... When you're kind of talking about that, it really draws parallels with, uh, I spend a lot of time walking around talking about chaos engineering. And I think one of the interesting aspects is that you're basically spending more of your time on the runtime part of your software rather than writing the code, right? As opposed to unit tests, when you kind of verify some logic, then you're actually more interested into what happens at the runtime when there's real hardware thrown behind it and there are real users and real patterns and 
and all of that that kind of more closely resembles um the real life so i guess my question is like with everything going to the cloud right now and uh, the solution is seeming to be for every question right now just make it microservices and put it in the cloud infinite scaling web scale um is performance testing becoming obsolete by any chance or is it um, transforming is it becoming more crucial how is it affecting it i think it's it's actually the contrary i think the proliferation of microservices as opposed to a monolithic type architecture means that it's even more important that you performance test your different services because I mean, microservices add a lot of advantages compared to monoliths, but they also add complexity. And that's a problem because it's significantly easier to performance test just one large thing rather than smaller services because then you start to have to look at interactions between them and you start needing some sort of proxy, uh, some intelligent proxy that can redirect and manage the flow of traffic between them as well. That's not really something that you have to think about with, with a monolith. So I think if anything, it's getting more important, but perhaps the tools or the techniques that we use to performance test are, are changing as well. But I totally get uh, why people get the, might get the impression that it's becoming obsolete. Cause I mean, you, you are uh, probably in that case, focusing on that, the risk of saturating the input and output to the, to the actual user endpoint that you will be directly accessing as a user. And while that is true, you, you might be able with the cloud and with microservices to split that traffic up and making it less of a problem with infinite scaling, as you say, uh, or in infinite scaling in quest, in uh, citation marks, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, as you split them up, as Nicole says, into multiple different services, you also get multiple different processes, uh, possibly running on different machines or even in the different geographical uh, locations. And that introduces a lot of latency. Uh, that, that's kind of part of the design that latency will be introduced, given that you will have to do some kind of requests between these services and have to build up this mesh of intelligent communication between these services. So while you might not need to test as much at the user API or the user endpoint that you expose to the public internet, you might very well end up with different kind of, of jokes or or bottlenecks that you haven't had previously in terms of communication between services. Yeah, that always brings me uh, the memory of Istio project. I don't know if you followed that when they designed all these microservices and then they were like, actually, a monolith isn't that bad. Let's go back to that. And they, <laughs> they moved it back on a famous example for everybody in the Kubernetes sphere. So you work and talk and present to a lot of people um, what would we say uh, would be the answer to the following question? Is everybody who should be doing performance testing? Because with things like uh, unit tests, there's enough social and peer pressure right now that if you're not writing them, you probably should look for a different job, maybe a baker. Is it the same with performance testing? Uh, are we still not at the stage or are we no longer at the stage uh, where this is something that's expected from people? If you were to like say like, what's the percentage of people that you interact with who actually do it properly? And what's the percentage that should be doing and aren't doing that? 
I happen to think that everybody should be thinking about performance. I, I am a performance tester, but I also don't think that it's a performance tester's responsibility to be to make sure, I guess it, a better way of saying it is that it's not a performance tester's sole responsibility. And they're also not the only persons who should be concerned with performance because it really is a team thing. Even as a developer, even if that's your primary job, you should be thinking about performance. You should be running some sort of performance test, whether you're going to be running the the full peak load tests. I mean, you could as well. But even at the unit testing level, there are unit tests for performance that you could be running. So I think from that perspective, yes, everybody should be doing some sort of performance. And I just want to add to that, that I think that, or that's that's actually one of our primary missions at K6, I would say. We want to democratize the whole idea of doing performance testing. I mean, it's for, for so long, it's just been a tester practice that have required you to learn all these fancy GUIs that you need to point and click in to, to create these uh, projects and actually build your load test up. But that's not really necessary as we see it. And we actually spent quite a lot of time to try to make it fit into developer workflows as well, giving you the possibility to actually do performance testing using code and maybe even as part of your CI or your, you know, checking in your, your performance test using Git. And that has, that has not, not been the case previously. So I, I would say that more and more people are able to or get the chance to approach performance testing, uh, but not all are actually doing it. I also have a little bit different approach to it because I think some people actually do performance testing that might not need to. Uh, I know, for instance, that both Nicole and I have our private portfolio portfolio pages where we post things that we that we do around the internet. I would say that mine, at least, Nicole's probably has ten times more traffic, but mine has like. <laughs> 10 to 20 visitors every month or something like that. I don't really need to load test that. I know Nicole does for her site. Yeah, uh, I totally do. <laughs> <laughs> but but I know for sure that GitHub's pages service will handle 10 to 20 people visiting each month. So while everyone should start to think about performance, I don't think that everyone needs to do load tests. So you need kind of need to, yeah. to tailor your efforts to the project that you're actually working on. But say that you have an actual user base and that you have concurrent connections, you should start to think about getting into performance testing in some, to some degree, at least. I think we, it's also worth talking about the difference between performance testing and load testing, which Sima alluded to. I think that people conflate the two, and I totally agree that not everyone needs to do load testing, but I do think everyone should be thinking about performance. And the difference is that there are many things, many activities that can count as performance testing. You know, running your page through Lighthouse or Lighthouse is already included in DevTools now. So it, it's free and it's pretty easy to, to just run it. That counts as a performance test. It's not a load test, but 
I think performance testing should be done by anyone who cares about the experience of of people visiting your site. And even if Sima doesn't do load tests, I'm sure that he he has also chosen a platform that is performant. So I know that you use Hugo, for example. And part of the reason that you use that is because the experience of a user is way better. That's that's thinking about it from the point of view of performance as well, even yeah, if totally it's not agree. load testing. Yeah, isn't Hugo a static page generator? Yes. Yeah, that's going old school. <laughs> Let's pre-generate everything. <laughs> now JavaScript. So wh- one thing that did make me think about is that uh, first, Nicole, you mentioned the keyword performance tester as a kind of job title. And then what Simon was describing was more like making it an element of different uh, job titles, job descriptions. So would you say that it's the case that it was previously, you know, this dedicated people who would do that and, you know, they would have this long beard potentially and and <laughs> their tricks. And now it's basically become more accessible and more, like you said, democratized and it's becoming part of everybody's uh, toolkit, including, you know, the developers, SREs and everybody else involved. Well, I, co- I come from a developer background, right? And, and I know that, uh, or I think that Nicole is probably one of the best performance testers that I've met and I don't see any long beard on her. So I, I, I assume that it's not only people in sellers uh, <laughs> with neck beards that, that do performance testing, right? But with that said, I do think there's still a place for people that are specializing are specialized at performance testing, but I think their role will be more of a strategic or coaching capacity rather than actually being the ones that have to do all the actual load tests themselves. Just as with testing, right? When we when we do cross-functional teams and we involve the testers in the teams and have them be part of the team, we should probably do that with performance as well. As part of your definition of done or your deliverables in your team, you should probably do some performance testing, just as you do unit testing, integration testing, UI testing, and things like that. So I definitely think that it's becoming more of a task or a practice than a role, but I still think the coaches for that practice have a very important role to play in the organization. That's fair enough. I'm not going to argue with that. Instead, I would like to shift gears a little bit and go to some of the talks that I saw. And in particular, the one that I really liked was the Schrodinger's Pokemon. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm obviously biased for case engineering, but I was curious, um, where did the idea come from? And what would you say is the overlap in general between the case engineering and chaos testing in general and performance testing from the perspective of someone who's coming from the performance background? Sure. I think uh, Sim actually had a lot to do with my introduction to chaos engineering. I think that at its heart, it is very compatible with performance testing. There are a lot of similarities. There are some differences. The difference is mainly, I think, a slight attitude shift in any sort of testing, at least traditional testing. The idea is to prevent failures or errors. But with chaos engineering, that is changed a little bit because the idea is not to prevent them, but to 
reproduce them and accept as a given the fact that applications are going to fail. And perhaps that also has to do with the realities around, you know, microservices and, and event-driven architecture. The, the architectures of our systems are becoming more and more complicated. So it's becoming more and more difficult to unequivocally, you know, try to prevent a failure, that's just not realistic anymore. So I think chaos engineering comes from that need to react to what actually is. But the similarity is that they're still both very focused towards making the application or the system hardier, uh, more scalable, more performant, more reliable. I think that the lines are blurring a little bit between performance testing or performance engineering and also SRE, site reliability engineering. I think that there are a lot of skills, skill sets that are now overlapping. Definitely. So for everybody who hasn't seen, can you explain why it's a Schrodinger's Pokemon situation? Sure. So Erwin Schrodinger is a physicist and he meant to say something about, he had this famous thought experiment where he puts a cat into a box and it's a thought experiment. So the idea is think about what would happen to the cat if you introduced it to some sort of poison. Now, I'm sure he has other things to say in the world of quantum physics. I'm not a physicist, so I just repurposed that to performance testing. And I think it is so true that when you're running these tests, the tests are almost worthless unless you know how the application is behaving. Otherwise, you're just subjecting the Pokemon in a box <laughs> to a lot of random events and you don't know how it's actually doing inside there. So the reason that I, I thought of that thought experiment is that K6, which is a company that I work for, was recently acquired by Grafana Labs, which um, is a company that has many, many projects and a lot of them have to do with observability. And I was surprised by the opinion of some people that, that this was a surprise or they weren't sure how it fit together. And I thought it absolutely fits together because you need observability for performance testing. How do you know what's happening otherwise? So there's a huge overlap there because if you don't know if you don't know what's happening inside the box that your Pokemon or your application is in, then how will you know if it's alive or dead? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if Schrodinger was coming up with that today, <laughs> he would have picked a Pokemon that's both dead and alive at the same time. That makes perfect well, sense. Yeah, well, the Pokemon <laughs> part is just because I, I actually really love Pokemon. <laughs> All right. Okay, no, that's fair enough. And I really can kind of relate to the idea of Pokemon sitting in the box. That's firmly close. I like that. And also, I just wanted to mention like the Cubedim conversation that you had with Kelvin. That's such a small world. Uh, Kelvin Chang used to into at my team a few years back. So I was like, oh, yeah, this guy is going places. That's really cool. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. And I really wanted to have him on, on our live stream, which is K6 Office Hours. We have it every week and we just talk about different ways that people use K6. And Kelvin had an interesting use because he used it in his academic thesis, which is not something that we see a lot. But he has he has a good head on his shoulders and and it's not so academic that it's infeasible. And he created this thing called Cubedim, which is essentially a 
a reverse proxy that kind of intelligently manages traffic. So he applies concepts like brownout theory and dimming to proactively stop requests from being passed on to other microservices, depending on the the state of the system. Yeah, and the response time and everything. Yeah, good conversation. And uh, shout out to Kelvin. Okay. So uh, I think at this stage, we really need to cover what K6 really is and what it does. Uh, we know that you've worked there. We know that it has something to do with load testing and performance testing. We know that Kelvin used it in his thesis, but what is it really? And why is it so cool? So K6 is mainly an open source tool. We've created K6 OSS, which is the main part of the of the actual offering that we have, that is used to create a load against the system. So what it does basically is that it allows you to, using JavaScript, create a series of logical... K6 is a load testing tool. It's open source and available for anyone to use. We also have a cloud offering that you can use that takes care of some of the management for you. Uh, but mainly it's an open source tool. It's used to create and apply load to your system. So you can use that to uh, generate a lot of virtual users and have them do requests against your system. And it does that by utilizing a very, very performant Go backend that that we expose to this JavaScript layer that, that the users may, may create their tests in. So you build a test using JavaScript, you define how many users, what the circumstances should be for your test, and then you run it in this OSS backend that we've made available. And it will spin up these users and have them execute whatever you put them to. And if you use, for instance, the K6 operator or K6 cloud, you may also specify how many load generators, how many K6 instances you want to have and how, how you want to distribute your users across those instances. All right. I love the fact that it's open source. Curious why you picked JavaScript as the kind of user front-end language. But it sounds like it's basically a step up from tools like Apache Bench and Work and uh, Locust and whatnot that makes it just easier to automate um, generating all of that traffic. Definitely. Right? And we were thinking like, okay, so what, what language should we use as the user API or the user layer or the scripting layer, if you will? And our previous product, Load Impact V3, uh, was written with Lua as the scripting, as the scripting layer. But then we thought at some point, okay, so what is the more, most important characteristic of, of the scripting interface that users should be exposed to? And we came to the conclusion that it's commodity. You, you want as many as possible to be somewhat familiar or somewhat you know, experienced in whatever scripting language you use. And Lua, while very cool, definitely isn't that language. <laughs> uh, so what language would make better sense than JavaScript? I think... Almost every developer I've met has some kind of experience with JavaScript. Either you love it or you hate it, but you've at least been exposed to it at some point, um, <laughs> which makes the learning curve a lot less steep than if we were to go for something completely different. Yeah, until you need to do a loop. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a good point, and uh, I guess it would. Really it's completely independent of what how your software is actually written, right? It's just the scripts that test themselves. So 
uh, it's probably a solid choice. And yeah, I can I see why Lua wouldn't be like uh, popular enough. <laughs> I also wanted to say that for testers, it's also really good because most automation testers, even if you're you know, doing functional testing, have had some sort of interaction with JavaScript as well because tools like Selenium WebDriver or Puppeteer or Cypress, those are all written in JavaScript. And so it's a lot easier even for a tester to, to get started. And the whole idea is that we're trying to bring load testing from this complicated, really monolithic tool that requires licenses and a full environment and a different language. And there are load testing tools that have their own scripting language to something that just seamlessly fits into your workflow, a language you already use, an IDE you already use. It's, it just made sense to us and on a lot of levels. Yeah, some popular old school tools even use C as their as their scripting scripting <laughs> language, right? Which so, one are you talking about? <laughs> so there, there there are a lot of different alternatives, and I, I think out out of the ones that I've seen, JavaScript is probably at least for me the the most reasonable or the easiest one to digest. Yeah, and I can see a kind of classics. Uh, XKCD reference with its compiling applied to my <laughs> script for load testing being a problem. Okay, so for everybody who wants to uh, test it out, I guess they go to github.com slash grafana slash k6 now, or is that the best place to start? And they just I would say the, the best place uh, to start is probably to go to just click k6.io and just click the docs section and you will get some uh, pretty neat guides on how to get started. Uh, if you prefer to start from GitHub, uh, by all means, but I think you'll have an easier time getting started if you start in the documentation. Then you okay. get, get so some hand-holding. <laughs> one of those unique projects that actually have good docs while being open source. That's <laughs> extra points for you. And for everybody who's been confused, so you used to be called Load Impact, right? And then you rebranded as K6 because I'm guessing that was your flagship project. And now you're part of Grafana Lab, but you're still operating more or less independently. <laughs> Is that an accurate description? So what changed yeah, after I the acquisition? Yeah, so. I it actually started. It actually started as Gator Hole. I think that was the first name of the company. Right. And uh, <laughs> they were making an MMORPG. I'm sad that I wasn't around for those days. <laughs> I think it was called okay. World Eater, the, the MMORPG. And we've actually jokingly yeah. told the CEO of Grafana that, did you know that you also bought an awesome IP <laughs> for an MMO when you when you acquired K6? <laughs> That's really what they bought us for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a bonus. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, so apart from extra IP, uh, what changes for you, uh, like day-to-day -day, uh, being part of Grafana Labs? We have a people ops team. <laughs> That's one of the, the main things, I think. We get a lot more support for a lot of functions that were sort of split. We don't have HR in K6. We're a team of 30 plus people. And mm -hmm. so there's no HR, there's no hiring team. It's really just the hiring managers and, and the colleagues, really, who do the interviews and do the screening. So. 
uh, I think at least in the short term, there's not much that's changing for us in terms of direction or or really anything else. Even the team structure, we're still operating pretty much as an independent unit. And we have actually already been using, we had been using Grafana internally even before the acquisition and the people at Grafana Labs had been using K6. So using each other's products was not something that started as a result of the acquisition. That's actually one why one of the reasons why this acquisition made so much sense because we were already fans of each other's products. But in the long term, I'm sure that the direction of both projects products are going to change and move towards each other. But I think that's also a pretty natural progression. We've already talked about how observability and performance testing go hand in hand. So that is the direction that the market is going as well. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Definitely. And it also doesn't hurt to just the you know fact that we've gone from having 30 awesome colleagues that to collaborate with to suddenly have over 400 colleagues to, to collaborate yeah. with. So it's definitely a huge boost in terms of the collective knowledge or the collective possibilities that we have, as opposed to being just this tiny player with 30 employees. Are they all playing your game now? Or... <laughs> all the 300 colleagues playing your game now we play so many games now uh, which is kind of awesome so if you don't enjoy the current game there's always other games to join as well so uh, i think it's really cool that we have that opportunity to to be involved in each other's projects and you know share knowledge and share experience across those project boundaries so no they're, they're not all playing our game uh, <laughs> but we we get to participate in their games as well that's awesome. So I wanted to kind of use that opportunity to maybe introduce some of our um, audience to some of the projects that are also open source and are also awesome, but are not called Grafana. Um, so they might not <laughs> know about them. So could you do like a quick tour of force of things like Loki and Tempo and Tanka and um, you know what makes them awesome and um, how they can be useful to our listeners? Sure. I mean, I, I'm personally super excited about uh, Tempo. I think it's a really great product. And what it does is that it serves as a backend for distributed traces. So you'll be able to do distributed tracing using Jagger or OpenTelemetry or what have you, and then have that visualized as part of your Grafana uh, UI as well. So you'll be able to drill down in these traces and look at values that are produced as part of your of your trace. Uh, so it, it really brings it all together in such a neat way that you're able to get all the metrics uh, out of your system or out of K6 and, and visualize those and also correlate them with whatever traces you have uh, been generated uh, as you do these requests. So you, you, get told, you get the full experience of having uh, high, vi high visibility, high observability into your system, which I think is just smashing. And it's also open source, just as the other projects, as you say. Certainly, yeah. So is that, uh, so you said the backend, does it include the storage layer or does it still need some kind of database uh, for the actual storage behind it? Well, you actually write your traces directly to, to Tempo. So uh, 
Uh, I think it actually uses, I, I'm not really sure about the internals. I usually use the Grafana cloud uh, offering, uh, mm -hmm. but, but you don't need to have anything separately set up. You, you offload them to, to Tempo, and then you add that as a data source to your, to your Grafana instance to be able to inspect it and browse it. That makes sense. A nice plug for Grafana Cloud, starting at nine ninety nine. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> starting at free forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for for us, it's free. So, like, why wouldn't we use it? <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Okay. Yeah, Tempo really um, sounds I, awesome. I actually made a video recently. It's called a tester's overview of Grafana Labs open source project because I was also a little confused. I knew about Grafana, just Grafana as the primary project, but I wasn't too sure about the other projects. And I guess I should preface this by saying that we have just joined Grafana like two months ago. So don't take it as a company line. This is how I make sense of it. They have the three so-called pillars of observability, right? And what Simo was talking about, Tempo, falls into the traces. And the other two are logs and metrics. So for logs, Grafana have uh, Loki, which is a log aggregation system. And then for metrics, they actually have a bunch of different projects. There's I kind of separated into two, which is like the pull-based monitoring and the push-based monitoring. And mm -hmm. there's graphite. On one end, there's graphite. And the, on the other, there's Prometheus. So they're both time series databases, but they also are able to, they're actual stores of the data. And then they're both not really made for multi-tenant systems. So if you want to scale that out for Graphite, there's Metric Tank and for Prometheus, there's Cortex. And the one that I always forget is Grafana Tanka, which is a configuration utility for a Kubernetes cluster. That's the one that I've had the least experience with. I've actually never used it. Yeah, I was just having a quick browse of what it's actually doing. It looks like it's replacing JSON, well, YAML with uh, some more customizable JSONet. layer. JSONnet, yeah. yeah. All right. And uh, Loki is kind of like Prometheus, but for logs, is that what it is? <laughs> That's correct. Well, me personally, Loki now makes me think of a crocodile because of Disney Plus series. Or was it alligator? Oh, you don't what's... think the Norse god? <laughs> <laughs> what problem does it really solve, Loki? It's just as Nicole uh, says that it really allows you to get even more observability into your system, right? Because you usually have logs and you have them distributed across your applications and, mm -hmm. and or your services, and you'll have to manually digest or you know, expose them to actually be able to browse them. But you want to bring all of that together into uh, preferably Grafana and uh, make sense of it all at the same time, right? So uh, say, for instance, that you have a metric that is subpar to what you're expecting, then you can add Loki to be able to add logs as annotations to that uh, metric as well. So you'll be able to, you know, drill down into that log and and check, okay, so what was happening? Why is it slow? And accompany that with tempo and the traces that you get. So, okay, these were the values that were put in and uh, what effect can that have on whatever result we were getting? So it really ties everything together in a nice way. 
But for to answer the more specific question about Loki, it's a good way to aggregate logs from multiple sources and have them available in one place. So does it replace something like Splunk or Humio as the log aggregator, or is it specifically like trying to attach relevant logs to metrics uh, for that purpose? Do you still need to have like the central log aggregation outside of Loki if you use Loki? I've not used maybe Nicole knows better, but I've not used it extensively yet, but uh, my impression is that you are not you don't need to have anything else you can just pu- push it directly yeah to yeah i don't think you need anything else you could still i mean all of grafana's projects are very composable so you can use them with other tools as well but yeah i think loki you, you don't need to you can just use loki and have it sent to grafana they basically turn i think it turns logs into metrics kind of cuz it uses the same label sets that prometheus does so that's one of the reasons why they they work so well together so I know that a lot of people just kind of pick up these tools one or another when they need it, and that's how they get started with the, let's call it, Grafana ecosystem. What would you say would be like the best way to start with that? And here's where you plug the Grafana Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Grafana Cloud would be the easiest way to start. And and really, like even with K6, if you're just starting, I mean, depending on your proclivities or your experience, your interest, I guess, I might actually just say, go and install K6OSS. And then the same way I'd say, install Grafana for free locally, because that's a good way to start. And if you're on a Mac like I am, like for K6, it's brew install K6. It's, you know, it's just really easy to to do that. I'd say start with the open source alternatives and then see if you even need to go to the cloud. I totally agree. And I mean, just downloading the Docker Compose file and having the whole Grafana stack being set up on your system as Docker containers, that's probably the easiest way to get started. Start with that, have a look, see what products you need and uh, to what extent, and then you can consider the cloud alternative if that makes sense for you. But with that said, if you don't want to do all of that, you get a free, there is a free tier of Grafana Cloud that you can use that include quite a lot to be a free tier. So you, you can get started and go quite quite a long way with just that. So if you don't want to set it up locally, you want it to be in the cloud for some reason, or you, you just want to use a cloud service, go for Grafana Cloud by all means. You can try it for free, so you don't have to make any upfront investment for it. And then if you like it and need more, then there are several plans to choose from. Okay. And that sounds like a really good segue into the closing <laughs> notes. Um, so you know how to start, you know what the performance testing and load testing is about. You know where to find our guests, uh, Nicole and Simon, k6.io, and uh, potentially is that LinkedIn or Twitter to reach out directly to you? Twitter, probably. Twitter, probably. Me, yeah, same. And if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at 0x12b on Twitter. 0x12b. There we go. <laughs> and Nicole, where can we find you? Oh, no, I have to spell my name. <laughs> I'm at N underscore V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-E-V-E-N. <laughs> Don't worry, people will be able to pause and rewind that. So it should be just fine. <laughs> All right. Well, so before I let you go, I let you off the hook. I just wanted to uh, squeeze one last bit of information out of you. And the question is the following. If you were to pick a single highest return on investment thing that you did for yourself and your career, 
it can be anything from picking up yoga to reading a book to going on a <laughs> retreat um, or learning a new skill. What, is, what, what, what would you pick if you just could pick one single thing? For me personally, it's been, if not as general as exercise, then maybe going out into the woods, just doing something physical that is totally uh, non-related to what you do professionally and just find that time to unwind and let let your thoughts uh, marinate so to speak while you do something else it's really been a high high return on investment for me uh, a lot of great ideas coming from come from being able to completely unwind and recharge and and not think about your professional work for sure awesome marinated thoughts are the best good for yeah. your microbiome <laughs> what about you nicole if i could only give one piece of advice for anyone who is a developer or tester or sre or or really any sort of knowledge worker it's take notes learn how to take good notes and develop a system, a personal knowledge management system around those notes. So you're not just taking notes and then forgetting them. I personally use the Zettelkasten methodology that was pioneered by Nicholas Luhmann, who's, who's a German, I believe. But you don't have to do anything super extensive. I think it's just, it provides so much value to have a second brain. You dump things into it that you are so sure you're going to remember years from now, but you will not. <laughs> you will completely forget what you were working on. The things that you think are very obvious are not going to be obvious in a few years. Technology, especially if, if we're working in, in technology, um, in tech, it's just moving so quickly all the time. There's so many different languages and frameworks and concepts we can't possibly keep up. And that's where you need to find something that you're going to stick with. And at its simplest form, use Markdown. Use something that you can store your notes in in plain text. Use something digital. I understand analog is really awesome and I have my own fair share of fountain pens, but trust me, digital is the way to go because you can search it. And then also having a system where you're reviewing the things that matter to you and you're consolidating your thoughts. So you're not just parroting what other people say, but you're actually thinking about how it fits into your view of the world of technology. That's essential. And it seems like such a non-technical answer you know take notes it just it, it's simple and we all think we know how to do it but we don't and let me just recommend uh, how to take smart notes by Sonke Ahrens is a really good place to start I really like your usual uh, analogy when it comes to note taking the one with how to performance test uh, LDAP or Active Directory services <laughs> where you were like I have no idea how to do this Okay, but turns out I've actually done it in the past and that I have a note explaining <laughs> exactly how to do it. And that's just such a time saver when, when you are yeah. facing problems that you might have encountered before, but uh, given our limited capacity to store this information, you, you don't remember it on the, in the top of your head. Yeah, apparently I've tested it before and I use JMeter and I have everything written down there, like how, <laughs> how to do a thread bind in JMeter and why a thread bind is there and actions and thread unbind and all these things. And really, if you had asked me, I would have said, I've never tested LDAP. I don't even really know what that is. 
That sounds like really good advice. Well, that is until Neuralink develops the direct brain to computer connection and uh, <laughs> you, know, you can plug in directly into your website. But until then, that's solid advice. Thank you both. Uh, Nicole van der Hooven and Simon Aronson, thank you for your time and see you next time. Thank, thank you for, you having, for having us. having us. It was a treat. Thanks, guys.